quite delightful. It was great. It was just stolen. The show was the greatest on earth. The rock and roll was perfect. Hello, everyone. This is The Last Defense, and here are your hosts, um, Hano Navi and... This is Michael Belowski. Okay. Now, today we're going to cover a serious topic, to, and we're going to talk about the police state. Now, what exactly is a police state? According to Wikipedia, a police state is one in which the government exercises rigid and repressive controls over the social, economic, and political life of the population. A police state typically exhibits elements of totalitarianism and social control, and there is usually little or no distinction between the law and the exercise of political power by the executive. So, um, with that note, what I'd like for us to talk about now, um, I wanted to discuss a little bit of the police state that is forming in the United States. Now, we normally associate... Um, freedom and, you know, economic prosperity and all sorts of things, all sorts of ideals with the United States. But um, just recently within this century, we've had an incremental um, overthrow of the government through the use of um, executive orders. And these executive orders allowed the U.S. government to slowly gain more authority and centralize power through legislation. So, through these executive orders, we're seeing the rise of this police state, and now people are starting to speak out against it. Unfortunately, it seems as if they're trying to go full steam ahead and push forward for the police state anyway. So we have to keep in mind that all of these executive orders are starting to violate the Constitution. They're also starting to violate the Posse Comitatus Act, which um, defines what level of jurisdiction and uh, participation the U.S. military has in um, <clears throat> civilian affairs. It also violates amendments 4, 5, and 10. So, with that being said, um, I'm going to give the mic over to you, Mike, and let's go ahead and hear your stories, okay? Okay, well, I've had some experience with the police state. Uh, actually, I had an experience back in the U.S. in Newark, New Jersey, with the Newark police but I'm not going to really get into that tonight, but in a future broadcast, I probably will. Um, let's just say hey, I had a run-in with the authorities there, and I wasn't charged with anything, but nonetheless, I was put through the system. And That's a long story. But what I can talk about today is um, I covered the G20 last year. The G20 was in Seoul, Korea. We're broadcasting from Seoul, Korea. And... I have some photos on my Facebook that might be kind of interesting. We might post some of them on the lastdefense2012.com. It's basically riot police, you know, police with full, you know, the big shields, headgear. And in the photos, they're not really doing anything, just standing around. There's a lot of them. There's hundreds of them, probably thousands altogether. But I've seen photographs in Korea where things get ugly, get bloody, frankly, and not not just in Korea, you know, back in the U.S. last year at the, I think it was the G20 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you can see videos online on YouTube of police attacking college kids at a nearby college campus near that G20. Uh, a newspaper delivery man was beat to death by police in London at a, I think it was a G20 or one of those economic summits in London, England, about a year ago or two years ago. So 
The police state is real, but those are all things from a few years ago. So now what I want to talk about is the Department of Defense purchased 450 million rounds of hollowed ammunition. Now, why is that important? Well, hollowed ammunition is illegal for use in wars, and it's too expensive for target practice. So let's do a little process of elimination here. It can't be used overseas in war. Not that that stopped the U.S. from using other illegal weapons, but in any case, um, they can't use it for war. They can't use it for target practice. Who does that leave us with? That leaves us with the American people. And I want to talk about a disturbing scenario that I see developing in the United States that coincides with this purchase of almost a half billion rounds of hollowed ammunition. The United States Congress has about a 9% approval rating, a historical low. I don't think it's ever been lower than that. And that was from like over a year ago, so it's probably 7 or 8% now. And uh, there's about 5 million guns being purchased a month. I, I think it's more than that, but that's what Alex Jones, radio host, said on his show. And that sounds about right, because just one manufacturer, Sturm Ruger, I think they're based in Texas, they sold... Um, over 1 million guns for the first quarter of this year. So that would be about a three-month period, up 40% from last year. And they're not taking any more orders. They literally can't. Their factories are maxed out. They can't produce any more guns if they wanted to. And Chris Parsons, the head of Storm Ruger, said that about 40% of their customers are citing distrust in the federal government as the motivation for their purchases. So... What you kind of see here is you see the federal government stocking up on ammo, among other things that I'll get into in a moment, and you've got the people with all-time distrust and anger at the federal government who are also stocking up on ammunition. And basically we got a disturbing scenario brewing up here, and we don't want it to come to that, but it's kind of like... I want to back up to a conversation that I had with another journalist, Webster G. Tarpley, about a few days ago in a conference call. And I was he kind of covers like geopolitics and some of the other things we talk about. I started bringing up this matter to him about the police state and the ammunition being purchased. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. Don't get into that. Just, just worry about the economics. Just worry about the geopolitics. And I said, no, no, wait. Um... You, yeah, that's that's the big thing, you know, the economics and the geopolitics. But there's a police state brewing in the U.S. We can't ignore that. Maybe it doesn't have to be like we don't have to be paranoid. We don't have to be panicking, but we can't ignore it nonetheless. So kind of the conclusion of our debate that we had was prepare for the worst, but hope for the best, obviously. Try to settle things peacefully through economic programs and through journalism and spreading, you know, ideas of peace. But in the meantime, you do got to prepare for the worst. And with that, I want to basically say, you know, if you're listening, look at your family, think about your children, if you have any, or even if you don't, look at your kitchen. How much food do you have? Do you have, think, try to imagine a scenario after a food riot. What's a food riot? A food riots will, will storm their gro the grocery stores the food markets, and they, t they take everything. You've seen it in the movies. They had that 
movie about the bird flu this year. The name, it won't come to me right now. Uh, basically, um, imagine you can't go to the grocery store to get food. How, how many days would you last and what you got? Now, imagine you don't have electricity. You don't have running water. Um, again, think about your family, or even if you're alone, how long would you make it? This is something that I think we all have to think about because we're so used to depending on the system that we live in. We don't, we don't even think about it. And a lot of times you probably think, oh, it could never happen here. This is the United States of America. It could never happen. Yeah, it could. And it has happened. It hasn't happened. Actually, it has happened in the U.S. If you talk to people who, there's probably not many around, but the Great Depression was pretty serious. I think several million people died from starvation and malnutrition during the Great Depression. Um, but so it has happened here. It's also happened in Weimar, Germany, and it's happened in Argentina. And I'm going to get into those scenarios later. But I also want to talk about Alex Jones, the radio host I just mentioned. He said he read a Pentagon report basically saying it would take 10 days for people to, the average person, to kill for food. And another, about two weeks, 14 days, for people to even resort to cannibalism. Now, that might sound kind of extreme, but to be honest, I think those numbers could actually be conservative. I mean, if you can't go to the grocery store for food, if you're running out of food, your kids are hungry, you're hungry, people are panicking, people are freaking out, um, imagine if a mob is knocking on your door and they want to get in and loot your house. These kind of things, we can't imagine them because we never lived through them. But there's something, you just got to think about it. You know, again, plan for, the, plan for the worst, hope for the best. So I also want to get into some other things here. It's not just guns that people are purchasing. The U.S. The Department of Defense also ordered 30,000 drones. What are drones? The drones are the unmanned airplanes that they're using in Afghanistan and all over the Middle East. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of a dirty form of warfare, if you think about it. Somebody sitting at a computer somewhere, maybe tens of thousands of miles away, like, like playing a video game, is flying these things all over the place, and they're bombing real people. You know, hundreds of people are dying in these attacks. And uh, they, they ordered 30,000 for the U.S., which brings me to a quote by President Obama. This was at a, one of those dinners that they host at the White House. And this is meant to be a joke. And it was, it's kind of a joke, but if you read in between the lines, it kind of isn't. He's referring to, I'm just going to read from the article here. This is from the houseofpain.org. Okay. He says, the president, this is from the article, the president began by noting that his two preteen daughters were fans of the boy band and went on to warn, I guess he's talking about the Jonas Brothers here. He, this is his quote. But boys, don't get any ideas. Two words for you. Predator drones. You will never see them coming. You think I'm joking, end quote. And, you, you know, the audience kind of, there's like a laughter. And, but if you think about that, and this, this was made like a year or two ago. Now they ordered 30,000 drones for use in the U.S. Now they've got almost a half billion rounds of this hollowed ammunition. And there's more. There's Boston Dynamics. Now, for this, I'm not going to get too much into Boston Dynamics. Boston Dynamics is basically a technology company that builds robots. They build robots with legs. They can move like people. 
you can watch the videos online of some of their robots. They, they essentially move like living things. You, if you push them, they react. Their legs move sideways in all which ways. They can move on ice. They can move up and down all sorts of terrain. They've also got tanks with all sorts of guns on them now that they use. Um, all, all these are unmanned, and this is a big deal when I say unmanned because the general feeling in the U.S. these days is that in the case of martial law, the U.S. military would not follow the orders to turn on American citizens, and this is probably true. Um, most of the U.S. military these days, they tend to know better than the average citizen what's going on in the real world. They tend to be more politically awake. And I think, I personally think they would not, most of them would not turn on U.S. citizens. But that's where these unmanned um, vehicles, the drones and the robots and the tanks come in. And to, for the tanks and the robots in Boston Dynamics, I would like to point you to the, another article on The Last Defense 2012 called Truth Stranger Than Fiction by Hanul Navid. The Department of Defense, oh, speak, aside from the unmanned military, there's going to be foreign troops in the U.S. in the case of martial law. According to the Department of Defense, foreign troops will be used to train on U.S. soil, including Russian troops now. Now, Alex Jones, again, going back to him, he's gone to probably a dozen or so of these urban warfare drills going back to the mid-1990s. He's got four of these police state films, police state one through four. We, um, we actually watched four the other night. And in all these movies, he basically documents and shows a video of foreign troops training for martial law on U.S. soil, which, and I also want to talk, as long as I'm talking about foreign troops on U.S. soil, I would like to point people to my story on Lou Dobbs, which is also on our website, which has a paragraph or two about the security and prosperity agreement between Mexico and Canada and the United States signed by George Bush and their respective presidents at that time. I think it was about 2006. And part of this deal is that our militaries of all three nations would be used as one collective military of the so-called North American Union, again, to quell dissent or any emergency of any kind. So the notion of foreign troops on U.S. soil is nothing new. It's at least a decade and a half old, if not longer. And after that, I want to get into Argentina, because as I mentioned, this kind of financial collapse, this extreme economic collapse, it's not fiction. It can happen anywhere. And it happened in Argentina about 10 years ago. There used to be a saying amongst um, there used to be a saying that said, as rich as an Argentine, if somebody was really wealthy, they would say, you're as rich as an Argentine. That meant Argentina had a very high quality of living. It was, you know, very wealthy, um, very high standard of health care and um, all that kind of thing. And then they had an IMF riot. And I don't want to get too much into what an IMF riot is because that gets into economics and stuff. It's basically where the IMF bank makes a deal, and this is all detailed in the 2002 BBC World Bank report by Greg Palast, where he obtained secret documents from the World Bank, where they basically, um, they basically make deals with the leaders of nations to 
sell their infrastructure, their economy, their businesses to the IMF and World Bank at pennies for the dollar after they um, collapse the economy. So it's like a, how would you say, order out of chaos or um, destroy and buy up kind of deal. And this happened in Argentina. And basically, I have a picture in my article, the one about the hollowed ammunition on The Last Defense 2012. It's a photograph of a cattle truck for for beef for you know taken to a slaughterhouse and the cattle truck fell over and this is like a week or two after the financial collapse in Argentina and people just regular people wearing like nice clothes still ran to the truck and started cutting off raw meat I'm not making this up you can look at the photograph it's not very pleasant to look at but you can look at the photograph regular people still wearing you know regular clothes are cutting off raw meat from these cows and eating them off the street, off the tarmac of the road. It's, it's a very uh, sad and depressing situation. That's one of the more recent examples in history of a severe economic collapse, a very sudden economic collapse, I might add. Um, the situation in Argentina has since got better, but in any case, for, for a time there, things were pretty bad. And another, probably the most famous economic collapse that I'm aware of is 1930s Weimar Germany. This was a period of extreme hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is where your currency loses value dramatically, so much so that you would, quote, need like a wheelbarrow of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Um, Give an exaggeration. It's a pretty extreme situation. And I don't think I need to explain what happened next. You have Adolf Hitler taking power and taking advantage of the situation, taking advantage of everybody's desperation. And then we went on to have World War II. So I want to just finish up briefly. I want to touch on some other aspects of a police state. Um, we have the TSA now at airports and now moving on to the streets, to shopping malls and to sporting events, NFL games. As, as most of you probably know, the TSA is very abusive. They try to make you walk through these powerful x-ray machines. They try to put, your, put their hands on people's private parts and even inside their clothes. This is all very well documented in mainstream media. About a year or two, we had the MIAC report, which was released by police officers to various media. The MIAC report is basically a policy paper for law enforcement throughout the country that basically states that anyone who has any distrust of the government of any kind, anybody who questions uh, the Federal Reserve, anyone who questions the United Nations, anyone who criticizes NATO or paying taxes or President Obama or, or anything like that, they can be considered terrorists, frankly. They can be considered threats to society. Um, I want to briefly mention the KSLA report. They're a TV station from Texas. They obtained documents from FEMA indicating that pastors, that priests all over the country were being recruited by FEMA to tell people during a period of martial law that basically to turn their guns in, to do what the government says, to not ask questions and just do what they're told. 
And people listen to their priests, and people, you know, that could be very a dangerous situation. But thankfully, at least one of those priests, probably more by now, have come forward with these stories and documents to support it. Um, I, I also want to really briefly, these are big topics, I know I'm going fast, but we talked about 9-11 last week in our first episode. There was another incident more recently, two or three years ago, I think it was four years ago now, the Christmas underwear bomber. All these type of events, 9-11, the underwear bombing, other events like like uh, the seven, seven bombings in London, they're all used to justify martial law. They're all used to justify the loss of our Constitution. Just real brief, I'm going to summarize the underwear bombing incident in Christmas day from, I think it was 2009 or 10. Kurt Haskell was a lawyer on that airplane. He came out within days of that incident and basically said that well-dressed people allowed him to get on the plane. He didn't have a passport. He didn't have any documents. The pilot didn't want him on the plane. He was forced on the plane by officials. And it later came out, Patrick Kennedy of the U.S. State Department admitted in in federal court that the U.S. State Department made sure that the underwear bomber got on that airplane to go to the U.S. and they were ordered to put him on the airplane. They knew he was, they knew he had no documentation whatsoever. So basically that was a suspicious incident, probably, frankly, a staged incident. And the next day they announced that they wanted to put the body scanners in that the TSA would go on to use which Michael Chertoff of the Defense Department had ordered, and he worked at the company that produced the machines like a year before that. So obviously conflict of interest there. Uh, so yeah, that, I know that's a lot covered really fast there. But in any case, I just wanted to summarize. We have a bad situation brewing between the stockpiling of weapons on both sides, the American people and the government. Um, we have examples in history in Argentina and Germany that these collapses do happen. They are dramatic, and they can happen in the U.S. too. And we have the TSA, the MIAC report, and incidences in the past like 9-11 and the underwear bomber that are being, that are being used to justify these policies. And they're probably all of them staged, staged events. So anyway, I'd like to pass the mic on to Hanul now. Okay, thank you so much. Um, those wonderful insights and anecdotes for um, the audience. So what I'm going to talk about now, I'm just going to get straight into it. Uh, I want to first start covering FEMA. Now what is FEMA? It's the Federal Emergency uh, Management Agency. And what this allows <clears throat> the United States to do is it allows for them to take centralized control of the United States in the event of an emergency. Uh, we saw them recently used in Hurricane Katrina. Was that 2005, correct? Yeah, 2005. Okay. Um, so um, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, they have been given a lot of different um, executive orders that have increased their legislative and executive ability. Um, now... FEMA goes way back to President John F. Kennedy. And in order to understand this, uh, I would like for you to 
refer to the document, the FEMA list of presidential executive orders. Again, that's the FEMA list of presidential executive orders. This comes from the website sweetliberty.org slash issues slash EO slash FEMA list.htm. Now, what it, what it mentions and what it lists on the website is that on February 16, 1962, President John F. Kennedy signed several executive orders which would allegedly give certain dictatorial powers to appointed bureaucrats in the event of a national emergency, um, in the event that it should be declared by the president, whichever president is sitting in office at the designated time. At the president's discretion, in any time of increased international tension or economic or financial crisis, the EOs could theoretically be enacted. So these EOs signed by Kennedy would give authority to the Federal Emergency Management Agency to control several things. Communications, energy, food, fuel, farms, transportation, highways, railroads, inland waterways, seaports, health, education, and so on and so on. So what this does is it typically nationalizes a lot of um, domestic resources. It allows for the military to gain loads of power in the event of an emergency. And it allows for uh, the president to basically supersede the authority of Congress. Now, I'm going to give you a list of different executive orders. I'm only going to cover some of them because there are a laundry list of them. Now, let's go ahead and take a look at that. On this same document... What I'd like to do is read about five of them. So the first one is the Executive Order uh, 10995. This is seizure of all communications media in the United States. So typically the president and the government are allowed seizure of all different outlets of media. So Executive Order 10997 <clears throat> allows the seizure of all electric power fuels and minerals, public and private. Executive Order 10999 allows the seizure of all means of transportation, including personal cars, trucks, or vehicles of any kind, and total control of highways, seaports, and waterways. Executive Order 11000 allows the seizure of all American people for workforces under federal supervision, including the splitting of family if the government finds it necessary. This one is extremely important because this affects you. So... In the event that there is an issue where they need a labor force, they can install these prison camps and they can actually use you as a free form of labor. So Executive Order 11001 is the seizure of all health, education, and welfare facilities, public and private. And I guess one more for good luck. Executive Order 11002 empowers the Postmaster General to register all men, women, and children in the U.S. So this is basically information data mining. So um, these are just a list of one of, you know, several of many, many, many different kinds of executive orders that have been passed over the, over the previous years. And this has all taken place in a relatively short amount of time. Now, there are many more. Please go to the document and find it online. Again, the name of the document is the FEMA list of presidential executive orders. Okay, moving along, I would like to get into um, some of the primary um, documents that are related to the incremental formation of a prison state, specifically mentioning 
the one in the United States that has slowly been taking shape over the past couple of decades. Now, <clears throat> here is one that you should definitely note, the National Security and Homeland Security Presidential Directive. This is also known as PDD-51, PDD-51. What this does for the United States, it authorizes a continuity of government plan to bring the powers of state and local government under federal control. And it also allows the use of all three branches of the federal government to work simultaneously with increased communication. Now, this was later joined with the establishment of the Council of Governors to centralize authority around the President of the United States. So, PDD-51 was made in 2007 by President George W. Bush. The next one, the establishment of the Council of Governors, was signed by Barack Obama. And I think this was done in 2009. So, what this does is it establishes a super congress. Now, according to an article, the new super congress, Same Old Special Interests by Bill Busenberg, uh, featured in theguardian.co.uk. What it does is <clears throat> this new super congress, according to the website, this new super congress or super committee of 12 lawmakers is tasked with the enormity of putting the United States fiscal house in order and it bears close scrutiny. Doubtless, these public servants are committed to finding solutions. Their many financial backers will be working equally to hard, <clears throat> no, excuse me, equally hard to preserve their interests in the coming budget retrenchment. The legalized system of quasi-bribery, known as the American Campaign Finance System, allows millions of dollars to flow from individuals and corporations to support federal candidates. Not a single member of Congress attains a coveted seat without the monetary support of key special interests. Those favors must be repaid, either in helpful legislation or protection from taxation and other federal interference. So who owns this new super Congress? With the, nominal, uh, with the nomination of the three final members of the 12-strong joint select committee on deficit reduction, the co-chairs will be Republican Representative Jeb Henserling of Texas and Democratic Senator Patty Murray of Washington. Each has a sterling credentials on the left and right, respectively. But this political yin and yang shares something in common. They have specific friends to look out for. So what this is saying is that with the Super Congress, essentially what happens is they select six from the Republican Party and six governors from the Democratic Party. And they are supposed to supersede all of the powers of Congress to centralize the power amongst a few people. And in turn, what this does is also gives closer um, monitoring to the um, President of the United States. And these groups will work together. So it's six people on the Republican side, six people on the Democratic side, and then you have the President of the United States, making the 13th member of the Super Committee, or the Super Congress. However, these different members are backed by different corporate interests. So it will not foster any kind of transparency whenever dealing with economic or political or military conflicts. It will actually just make the interest more coercive and more centralized amongst the members. So... Um, moving right along, these members of the Council of Governors, 
um, will normally serve two-year terms, but they can receive more if appointed. And they will work on matters related to civil defense, homeland security, military operations, and other civil operations. So essentially what they're doing, they're working together in the, in the event that a prison state or is necessary, or in the event that there is a severe crisis, whether planned or unplanned, whether real or, you know, doctored by, you know, some group. Um, these groups of people are given precedence to work together in order to resolve the issue or to take control, which is more likely going to happen. Anyways, we're going to move over to the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. This has been a very, very controversial bill that was recently passed, and people oftentimes note Section 1031 and Section 1032. In these different sections, it allows for the indefinite detention of covered persons without trial or charge, and does not specifically include domestic entities, or, or it does not specifically exclude, excuse me, domestic entities from these provisions. So essentially what it says, because the language is very vague, domestic groups, domestic entities, citizens, to be frank, will not be given the, the right to ex receive exclusion from this provision. And they can be detained indefinitely, without trial or charge, locked into a prison somewhere in the middle of nowhere, in one of the FEMA camps, more than likely. And they will also you know, serve under the um, prison camps as forced labor. They could also, you know, be killed, tortured, and um, separated from their families. You know, whatever horror you can imagine that happened during Auschwitz or World War II or in the gulags of Russia, it's going to happen in the United States if they start using this law. So this is something very interesting to note, as well as very frightening for the American public please refer to Section 1032 of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. Now, moving right along, I like to look at the Civilian Inmate Labor Program. Again, that is the Civilian Inmate Labor Program. Please Google this, and you will be able to find documents or PDFs related to this, or the full text. Now, this particular bill, and how it plays into the formation of a prison state, it's very, very important to note. It allows the military to use inmates from primarily federal prisons, but also on the state and local level upon approval and request. It counts as voluntary service and does not reimburse the prison facilities monetarily, so it's almost like a volunteer service, a cleanup or the building of roads. They essentially select inmates, and these inmates you know, work on military bases to carry out functions. And they are tax-free, and they are also <clears throat> not monetarily reimbursed at all. What this does is it helps to relieve jail space in the federal, state, and local penitentiaries, and it establishes free services provided by the labor of prisoners to the federal government. Now, the way this is important, we have to look at who qualify for this, you know, ceremonial induction into tyranny. Now, they're only going to work with prisoners that are classified as minimum level security. 
and it will work to detain people charged and convicted of low-level crimes. So in the case that you're ever arrested for protesting, you would fall under that jurisdiction. It is a very strong possibility. You can note this in Section 2 to 3 of the Governing Provisions, um, Letter E. This is very important to note. Um, in Section 3-3, in Part E, it refers to the facility as a civilian inmate prison camp, which shows that there is a form of slave labor taking place here. Now, we have to understand, a civilian inmate prison camp Prison camp, concentration camp, there is really no difference. This will all be monitored by the military. The military will oversee the operations on these bases. So be prepared for that. It is very real. I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next one. The National Resources Preparedness Executive Order, this was signed by Barack Obama in 2012, also created controversy. And it allows basically the president the authority to nationalize domestic resources. It is another executive order and a long laundry list of orders that allows for the government, especially the executive power and the executive branch, to take over the resources of the nation. So if there is a domestic attack, dirty bomb, whatever, you know, someone farts in public, um, basically what will happen is Barack Obama can take over the lay of the land. He can use all of the resources, you know, private and public corporations. It will also give him the right to nationalize these resources and use them for military use. Now, <clears throat> there's an article that actually features information about this, and it is entitled, Barack Obama Prepares for War Footing. And this was written by Edward Black and was featured in the Huffington Post. In this article, he notes that last Friday, March 16th, President Barack Obama may have quietly placed the United States on a war preparedness footing, perhaps in anticipation of an outbreak of war between Israel, the West, and Iran. A newly propounded executive order, titled National Defense Resources Preparedness, renews and updates the President's power to take control of all civil energy supplies, including oil and natural gas, control and restrict all civil transportation, which is also not... Excuse me, which is almost 97% dependent upon oil, and even prov provides the option to re-enable a draft in order to achieve both the military and non-military demands of the, of the country, according to a simple reading of the text. So, these are the provisions <clears throat> that are noted within this um, executive order. This can re-enable a draft, and this is not limited to people living domestically within the United States borders. They can actually call up people who are living abroad and call them home, and if they do not come, then they will get detained, and they could either you know, spend time in the labor camp, or they could get forced into the, into the U.S. military. So, the last one I want to talk about is H.R. 347. This is very important. This is the Federal Restricted Buildings and Grounds Improvement Act of 2011. What this does, essentially, if the United States government is using a particular facility or building, people are not allowed to protest or do anything disruptive. And if they are, they can get charged with crimes no more than 10 years. That is still a very serious issue because this allows for the United States to declare any area 
within the um, within the regional jurisdiction, within the borders of the United States, to <clears throat> be under the be under the provision and under the um, supervision, actually, of the United States government. And when this is so, anybody that trespasses, so-called trespasses, quote, quote, fingers, you know, it allows for um, the United States government to lock them up. So anytime there's a protest and they want to declare something federal space, if you're standing even so much as a millimeter in that space, you go to jail. So there's an article entitled You Can't Occupy This by Dahlia Lithwick and Raymond, uh, Raymond uh, Vasvari. This was mentioned in Slate.com. And they noted here, they say, simply put, the way this bill will improve public grounds is by moving all those unsightly protesters everywhere. The law purports to update an old law, Section 1752 of Title 18 of the United States Code, that restricted areas around the president, vice president, or any others under the protection of the Secret Service. Their original law was enacted in 1971 and amended in 2006. At first blush, the big change here is that while the old law made it a federal offense to willingly and knowingly enter a, restrictor, a restricted space, now prosecutors need only to show that you did it knowingly, that you knew the area was restricted even if you didn't know it was illegal to enter the space. This has been characterized in some quarters as a small technical change that hardly warrants an arched eyebrow, much less a protest. But it is important to understand that what has changed since the original law was enacted in 1971, because it shows how much a tiny tweak to the intent requirement in a statute can impact free speech of everyone. For one thing, the law makes it easier for the government to criminalize protests period. It is a federal offense punishable by up to 10 years in prison to protest anywhere the Secret Service might be guarding someone. For another, it is almost impossible to predict what constitutes disorderly or disruptive conduct, or what sorts of conduct the authorities deem to impede or disrupt the orderly conduct of government business or official functions. So, what they do is they essentially... Take over a space, if you trespass on that space, if you are so much disruptive, if you cough, if you sneeze, if you have to use the bathroom really quickly, and you're in their space and they want to arrest you, they can, and they can use this, they can use this law, this Improvement Act, Grounds Improvement Act, whatever, um, to restrict and even use it as a means of arresting citizens. So we have a long, 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 long list of different provisions, different articles, different things that have been released and that the government has been writing feverishly to, you know, to publish out in the open, and yet people still are not picking up these documents. It is important to understand the documents. That is where it no longer goes into the realm of conspiracy theory. It actually goes into the realm of fact. It's fact. These are the documents that are getting you know, published into the media. These are documents that are getting published on websites. They're counting on you to not know these things. They're counting on you to not read. So it's important to go out there and read. You can start with a general search, and then you can eventually get to the point where you can, you know, find documents that are related to one another. Find one document, read a little bit about it, highlight the main points, 
and then move on to other documents that may be mentioned within the within the document you're initially reading. So, <clears throat> what I wanted to note, lastly, um, I should have mentioned this before, there was a, recently a document that was leaked, and this created havoc. I don't even know how to describe it. When I read it, it was just like, what is going on? <clears throat> the document is entitled FM 3-39.40. FM stands for Field Manual. It is a training manual developed by the Department of the Army, and it is entitled Internment and Resettlement Operations. Now, if there's ever a document that is a smoking gun to the prison state in America, this is it. This document essentially trains soldiers to how to intern, how to arrest, how to even tape your mouth shut, how to even let you use the bathroom when you need to. And what it does is it shows the procedures for these, um, these initiatives, and it also <clears throat> shows the role and the responsibilities of the staff in these internment camps. It lays out the foundation for martial law. And it is naked, bold-faced, out in the open, tyrannical, you know, very well eloquently put tyranny, actually. Because this is a field manual, and it's got basically, you know, army jargon, whatever. But essentially, it also covers, it covers a lot of information about what they're going to do with these internment camps. And yes, they do apply to people in the United States. And some of the people they mention are domestic groups that um, resist the government. They are, they target um, returning veterans. They see them as a major problem in the, in the United States and they want to find ways to detain and imprison them. They want to detain local militias. They want to detain people that speak out against the government. They want to detain people who may think Barack Obama's face looks funny. So, um, this is very important um, document that you should check out. Definitely check it out. I'm going to read the document's name again. FM 3-39.40. It is entitled Internment and Resettlement Operations. This is posted on um, army.gov. So please, please, please look at this one. Pass it around to people you know. It is... Um, Available on two websites, actually. Army Knowledge Online, www.us.army.mil. It's also available at the digital library at www.train.army.mil for military. Okay, um, that's basically what I wanted to cover. I wanted to get into those so I could give you the, the know-how and the documents. If you already know these things, it's great. You're on the right track. If you don't, this is something that you could definitely use to um, do your homework and to start researching and understanding what's going on, what provisions are being passed, what acts are being passed, what legislation is getting passed in order to slowly clamp down on the freedoms of the United States and its people. So um, I'm going to pass it back to you, Mike. Um, do you have anything you want to add to this? Sure. Well, while we're talking about the FM 339-40, I had some notes of my own on that. It says this is going to be enforced by the United Nations, Red Cross, Department of Homeland Security, and FEMA. Now, Department of Homeland Security and FEMA are domestic. Red Cross and, well, the United Nations obviously are not. This is an international operation. 
it's frankly illegal, and it also depends on the Posse Comitatus Act being uh, withdrawn or omitted. For anybody who's not familiar, Posse Comitatus is an act passed in the late 1800s which prohibits the use of military within the U.S. territory, within uh, the states. And they are counting on an executive order by the president to omit this act, to bypass this act in order to go forward with the program. And another thing is that in the bill, they mention uh, social security numbers for rounding people up. Who has social security numbers? American citizens do. It's essentially proof that it's for American citizens. So I just wanted to add to that. Um, a few other notes while I was listening to you talk. I wanted to back up some of what you were saying. There's no mistake that the NDAA is for American citizens. Why? It was revealed in Congress that the, pres the president of the United States, or more specifically his cabinet, his people from the White House, specifically requested that American citizens be included in the in the bill, in the ability to secretly arrest and detain people. It's not just for foreigners. It was for American citizens. That was specifically requested by the White House, and that came out in Congress. I'm sure you can look it up online for the video of that. I've seen it myself a few times. The, the Council of Governors divides the United States up into 10 regions as opposed to 50 states, which will then be used. The governors are appointed by the president, and they will be run by the Secretary of Homeland Security. So this is not what we voted for. This is not the system of government that is the American system. Ten, ten regions, ten governors selected by the president, run by the Secretary of Homeland Security. That's not the U.S. government. That's something else. And, uh, yeah, that basically makes the president a dictator, if you ask me. Um, what else? Uh, I got Halliburton. This was reported by the Houston Chronicle. Halliburton has a sub-company called KBR. I don't know the acronym, but it's – I don't know what it stands for, but KBR is one of the companies that is building internment camps in the U.S. That was reported by the Houston Chronicle. Some more evidence about – uh, that the uh, camps are real, as if we needed more. Um, and finally, I, I talked about this report by Greg Palast, and I was going to read a quote, and I decided not to. I'm just going to summarize this quote real quick. Well, I'll just read some of it. It says, and, and this, is a refer this is about some documents from the World Bank that he uncovered while working for the BBC. John Palast is a journalist. He said, we found inside these documents that basically they require nations to sign a secret, a secret agreements in which they agree to sell off key assets to the World Bank and IMF, and they agree to take economic steps which are really devastating to the nations involved. And if they don't agree to these steps, then they were basically cut off from the system. They can't borrow money. They can't get any financial help from the... Uh, world financial system. So it's basically like, well, worse than bribery. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a threat. And this, this is, this is an official policy of the World Bank and the IMF Bank, who I think we can all agree pretty much work hand in hand with the, uh, with NATO, with the United Nations. They are United Nations um, 
banks. They, they are part of the United Nations. And if we think that they don't have the U.S. in their crosshairs, you would, I think that would be very naive to assume that they don't. I think they're probably going to take out the U.S. last, as the last domino to fall, so to speak. But, you know, we talk about martial law. It's kind of scary. You know, we, we don't want to think about it. We want to say, ah, it can't happen here. It's, you, that's only in movies, yada, yada. So what if it happened in Argentina? So what if it happened in Germany? So what if it happened in other countries? It can't happen here. Well, it, it does happen, and it's official policy according to these documents obtained by Greg Palace in 2002. So, and finally, uh, I just wanted to mention some uh, documentaries here. We watched Police State for the Rise of FEMA in, in preparation for this, um, this broadcast. Also, I, I had some questions about 9-11 from our previous broadcast, so I wanted to mention the, the documentary Loose Change. Um, there's, loose, there's three editions, Loose Change, Loose Change, second edition, third edition. I think the second edition is the best, personally. If you have any questions about 9-11, they're very professionally made, well-documented, well-sourced um, documentaries on those two topics. Again, that's Police State. There's police state one two three four and loose change one two and three nine eleven. So yeah, that's that, those are the only extra points I wanted to make. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? Uh, no, I think that concludes everything. Um, thank you for sharing that you know valuable information. That's going to help us out a lot. Um, anyways, uh, I guess we'll go ahead and end our podcast for tonight. And um, thank you so much for um, sharing your information with us, Mike. And um, mm-hmm. We're going to go ahead and end transmission.